Wherever you're heading this summer, we know you need to pack the right books. So come in to the July Vintage Podcast. our summer reading special where we'll be indulging our wanderlust with Andrew Solomon and going on a whistle-stop tour of the world with authors Emma Klein, Milena Busquets, Yawande Omotosho and Ruth Ware. But before all that, we're going to grapple with the very idea of a summer read with blogger and culture vulture Simon Savage, who joins us now. Welcome, Simon. You are wearing the most spectacularly summery shirt. I thought it was appropriate. It's quite surreal being in here when I listen to you guys. It's quite surreal. (laughs) I feel at any moment, well, yeah. Okay, let's just indulge that thought for a minute. Let's take it for a wander and see where it goes. What do you imagine when you see us, when you're listening to us? Well, because I've met you before, I imagine you obviously both, but I don't imagine the room to be quite like the room is. We expect you to be more opulent. Well, no, there's lots of books which I'm loving. I expect it to be much smaller. I thought it'd be like, do you remember when um, the broom cupboard... On oh, children's with, telly. Yeah, Gordon the Gopher and yeah. Philip Schofield. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. I won't say which one of you I thought was the Gopher. <laughs> I don't think you need I to. I don't think you need to. Uh, yes, we have all sorts of things in here. We have a big round table. We've got a piano. We've I've got lots of that. books. Um, we've got some red walls. We call it the Red Room of Pain, do we not? We do. Uh, because in here, Simon, we grill our guests. Oh, dear. And despite the fact that you've turned up clearly wanting to dazzle us with a, a shirt covered in enormous floral blooms of the most kind of tropical variety, it's not going to get you away from a grilling. And our okay. grilling is about <laughs> summer reading, is it not? It is true. It is true. Well, because we, we, this is thing. It gets towards summer and you start to see newspapers and articles all over the place talking about don't summer reading summer re- don't, yeah don't read those <laughs> um yes yeah, summer reading and there's this weird idea that 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 people read differently in the summer like they go on holiday and they it's a chance to read obviously but it seems to be it's suggested that you sort of read something a bit disposable or a bit trashy which i always find a bit weird so i thought i wanted to talk about what that means to us summer reading do you think it's though because it, it's that idea that people it's slightly patronizing i think that because i think people do when they go on holiday you want to switch off a bit. But I actually go for the big chunksters. Mm. <laughs> so I go for those books because I, I, well, most people probably don't read as much as we might do, mm-hmm. to be fair. This is part of the issue, yeah. isn't it? When you come to talk about this, you think, we are reading all the time. Yeah. So we're kind of not going to have exactly a busman's holiday when we go on holiday. We are going to make a conscious decision to read slightly differently, perhaps. Yeah. But that doesn't apply to everybody, as you say. No, and I mean, it's quite odd because I'll go on holiday. I live with someone who is not a reader. But when we're on holiday, he reads, like, avidly and we'll read a book a day. And I'll sort of go into this nice slow mode with the big chunkster. Ah, So it does, it does really change. Yeah. But I think, I, I find it quite patronising when the papers do this thing of, you know, it's always got to be a trashy summer read and, you know, it's set on a beach. Well, if you're on a beach, do you really want to read about a beach? You're on one. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's interesting, you see. Look around. Yeah. 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 And that, that's Man in the Strange Thong. There is that thing, isn't there, where people, that thing about reading a book, which is... I knew it would get to song. <laughs> Sorry, so, I've never tone. I'm never going to so be invited back. Three minutes in, and he's dropped the thong reference. <laughs> Knew it. Um, no, that thing where people read 
a book which might be sort of based on where they are. Now, I quite like doing that. Mm. So if I, I'll read a book from the, the country that I might be visiting, or it's an opportunity to delve into the culture of, of a country. We're recording this, of course, on the day where we've learnt about the EU referendum. And so there's been lots of people talking online already about the, the literature of different countries. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we should probably say that if we sound a bit spaced out, yeah. we are a bit spaced out, aren't we? I just feel like it's not real. I feel like I'm in a book. <laughs> it is the sort of thing you'd read in a dystopic novel, you know. Yeah. Years ago you'd think, oh no, we'll never leave the EU. Um, and I think that's the other thing, is that nobody's quite talking about what it's going to do to the book industry yet. Mm. But I think we all need a good mm. escapist read this summer. A, a good yes. escapist read, yes. yes. Um, you mentioned chunksters. Like yeah. you like to read something really big and meaty, because that's a, another thing for me. I like to have, you know, having got the opportunity to actually sit down and read for a bit, which is quite hard to find during the week. Mm. You know, pick up something really big and meaty and really go for it. Have you got anything in mind this summer? I've got a few. So I'd quite like to read Arcadia by Ian Pierce. Oh uh, yeah, that's and that's doing the rounds a lot at the moment. Uh, and is I that really... the one that also has a kind of interactive edition? I think it did. Yeah, it's quite a sort of different sort of novel, isn't it? So you can be quite with it and do it on your phone as well. That's quite exciting <laughs> if you can get Wi-Fi wherever you yeah, want. Yeah, take um, your data roaming charges before yeah, you do true. this. <laughs> but the reason that I like a big chunkster as well is because I'm not a fan of the e-book. And e-readers, no offence to anyone who is, um, but so I like to take like in my weight's worth. <laughs> so, and this summer we're doing something quite nice. We're going to Italy and we're doing a sort of family book club. So four of us are each taking a chunkster and we're going to swap it over ten wow. days. Wow! Do you know what you're taking yet? I'm going to take probably Arcadia, I think, and probably the Marlon James. But are you revealing to each other what you're taking, or is it basically like a surprise when you get there? Yeah. Oh wow! I think that's I like a nice that. idea. Yeah. yeah, like a holiday book group. Some people might think it's really geeky. <laughs> <laughs> well, like those people are not... <laughs> Tune out, those people. We, we never want to say no to, to listeners, but, you know, <laughs> geeks are book geeks are us, basically. Absolutely. And they Absolutely. Although we are very at home. With, I mean, you say you live with someone who doesn't read. I live with someone who buys his holiday reading at the airport. And I'm going... What? It's like the most stress. I'm curating my reading list in yes. about like February, and he basically kind of strolls up to a sort of bit of Smiths and goes, "Well, yeah. that's quite good." And Sees what's there. on it. But do you know? I do that as well. I go in just to check the charts and see how there's anything. Oh yeah, like it might be something extra. Because also, yeah. I'm thinking it's not part of my allowance either, so that's just an extra book. There yeah. you go. That's do you not? When you say the thing rubbish. about e-reader, Simon, I mean, I I agree with you. I I far prefer to read on paper but I always take my e-reader because it's got sort of the emergency rations on it but would you want to leave it on a pool when you're not with it I don't mind if a paperback gets nicked well I do obviously I'm furious (laughs) but if it was a big bit of equipment I'd be quite miffed I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that, no. I mean, I've I've taken an e-reader on holiday, but often it was because of work stuff, actually, rather than pleasurable reading. So. Oh, Will. Well, no, like having to catch like, stuff that's not available in a in a paper format. So I've downloaded a PDF. There's double or, disdain looks going I mean, on. Why, why am I getting told off for? You're on holiday. I know, You're I know. on holiday. Well, no, but for example, this summer I'll be reading books that will be coming out in September, but they're really exciting things. Can I, I, I ask you? Uh, yeah. Can I ask you something? Really, are you going to be reading the new Ian McEwan? That's on the list, for sure. The new Ian McEwan, the new Rachel Cusk, 
the new Margaret Atwood. I mean, come on, you know, if you could take those on holiday, you would, wouldn't you? So, I can. Uh, I've actually got a new Rachel Gusk in paper form. Actually, I have got the paper one as well. It's oh, got quite actually, a naughty very, cover. very good idea. I might take that because I think I read Outline when I was on the holiday before, but, and it's a wonderful book to read because it is about travel. It's, yeah. about, it's about really kind of losing your identity as you lose your familiar surroundings. Yeah. It's absolutely brilliant. It's perfect, perfect holiday read. And the next one, Transit, is a, is a, the, it follows on, so it's, it's going to be part of a trilogy of books. So Ooh, I've not read either of those, so maybe I'll have to take oh, both of those. They're, they're excellent. Do yeah. uh, I wonder what the last one will be called? Oh, I don't Stop. know. Stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here. Duty free. It'll be like a nice romantic comedy. I, absolutely no disrespect to Rachel Cusp, but can you imagine her writing a book called Duty Free? No, it would not no. happen. Maybe Arrivals. Something like that. <laughs> Which actually sounds like the sort of summer trashy read someone would recommend, isn't it? Not that I'm saying Rachel, because it's trashy, obviously. But the Ian McEwan I'm quite jealous about. Well, you've got friends. That's all I'm going to say, Simon. Thanks. From uh, the very, very uh, new, and we mustn't, you know, it's not really fair for us to be talking about books <laughs> that the people who are listening to us won't be able to take. But don't worry, you'll be able to read them very soon. Um, I really, really like to read old books on mm-hmm. my holidays because those are the kind of things that I mean how do you get time to do that in the normal run of things when books are pouring through your letterbox and you're interviewing people and you're reviewing them uh, and you just want to get keep across everything uh, that's going on so uh, though I am going to take some new books I'm really looking forward to taking Francis Bufford's new book Golden Hill which has got amazing reviews but I love to, to read a classic um, and I think maybe this year it might be something like a bit of Dickens or even a bit of a Hardy. Oh, oh! You see, I wouldn't have had those down as summer reads. Well, but why? Because in my head, like they're quite Dickens, winchy. Yeah, it's quite Dickens, autumny. Yeah. So, but and, and it does lead back to that thing. I think there is something that in your brain that says summer. Like I wouldn't really read a ghost story in the summer. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but I like the idea of classics. I'd quite like to take some Somerset Maugham on holiday this year. Oh, oh that's, that's a, a very great good call. idea. I mean, on that, I mean, you know any of his novels because he is as we know he's a writer who in some respects is sort of out of fashion but actually we don't entirely understand why I mean the short stories and there is a wonderful story which I heartily recommend and perhaps even particularly if you're going to the south of France called The Three Fat Women of Antibes which I remember reading as a child and it's just so fantastic and it is basically I'm not spoiling it for you about three rich widows who find themselves in a resort and this is what they do every year they go there for their reducing diets so they briskly walk along the seafront and they play tennis and they eat these very regimented meals and they sit in steam baths but their real problem is that they cannot find a fourth for bridge and then they do and all I'm saying is it's really hard to stick to your diet when you've got a new bridge partner Call me middle class. <laughs> middle class problems. <laughs> problems, exactly. Call me hashtag middle class problems. But I sympathise. It's a wonderful story. Have you read his novella Up at the Villa? I have not. That's no. absolutely superb. And it's, it's, it's set somewhere in Europe, somewhere seaside. I want to say Italy, but I might be wrong. Um, and something, it's a woman who's getting away from everything. And she gets this villa and something awful happens quite quickly. And then it's like, a, it's, yeah, that's, that's a teaser enough, I think. But I would highly recommend that. There is that element. I mean, I think we are all saying it, despite the fact that we're we're saying, you know, don't pigeonhole books. Don't say they're trashy. Don't say to yourself, I've only got to read something that's escapist. Mm. But we are saying that we want something that's quite 
grabby, don't we? Yeah. We want, you know, there is that idea of wanting something a little bit more pacey, a little bit more narrative, a little bit more fun. Maybe a novel that veers slightly more towards the entertainment mm-hmm. than the education, as it were. Yeah, I think so. I think there's something, yeah, about the pace of it. And I mean, I just read um, The Girls by Emma Klein, which is 1969, California. It, the heat comes off that book, but also mm-hmm. it's got this sort of almost thriller-like pace to it because it's about the, the Manson family murders and cults and all that kind of stuff. And that I think that's... Yeah, what, it's really feel-good. It's a... Well, it... <laughs> it's the most violent. I mean, well, it is the, it's really a good book. But I mean, it's... It, but I can, it's I pretty can see, dark. It's pretty dark, but I, I think... it's your point there, Well, I'm halfway through it, and it's got that... It's the heat of the summer, and it's one of those summer love things, even though it's all going to be awful. Yeah. But um, it, it's it got the right pace for a summer read as well, and but the writing is still beautiful. Mm. Yeah, amazing writing. Amazing. And I think that's the thing that people forget. It's like they suddenly want to go, don't read anything literary, just read something. Why? Why can't you read something that's both? I, I completely agree. I'm packing some serious literary heavyweights when I <laughs> pack my bag. I've got... Um, we talk about classics of the the man who loved children by Christina Stead, which has just been reissued. Oh my goodness! Um, that is, that's a bit of a brick of a book. Well, I didn't realise how big it was until it arrived, but it looks fantastic, and I, I figure a holiday is the perfect time to sort of yes. to jump into something like that. And even I'm, I don't know whether I'm going to do it, but I'm tempted to give the Magic Mountain a go, Thomas Mann, because I'm going to be holidaying in Austria, and I figure I'll be around mountains, and it might be the right time to to go for it, even though it'll be summer and will be more like the Von Trapps than uh, anything else. <laughs> well, um, what can I say to you, Will? You're picture, picturing I am, me in I am curtains. just saying, I'm picturing you in Lederhosen. Oh, sweet Lord. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, each to his own, but I don't think that's such... I, just I don't think that's such a traumatic image. Running on the top of a mountain. Exactly. <laughs> Spinning Arms around. Yeah. I'm just going to say word to the wise, and I love the magic mountain, but I am going to say word to the wise, don't make it the only book you take. Oh, no. Because it can be... It, I started it quite a few times before I read it. Um, but I do I do know what you mean. I don't know. We'll you, see. You need that kind of... An immersion read is sometimes what we need, isn't it? But it's also, like you said, about sometimes wanting to read where you are. Yes. So I will take some of these chunks, but I'll probably look up what books have come out in Italy around the area that I'm staying mm. just because it's quite nice yes. to yeah, read right. where you are. I know some of my mates who've been out and done um, Shadow of the Wind when they're in Barcelona mm. and that was, you know, a perfect place to read that. I would have loved to have done that. Well, and where are you going to be in Italy? Are you sort of Riviera? Or You're not you? turning up, are you? No. <laughs> he wants to be part of the book, Clark. He does. In my later house. You all do. Hello. He's going to turn around and say, look, I've got these books that you, they're not out yet. <laughs> will you be my friend? Here's Ian McEwen. <laughs> I've brought him physically. Um, no, uh, I will be in Umbertido. It's in part of Tuscany. Okay. Uh, apparently it's in the woods and it's got a turret, which takes me back to fairy tales. so I may well take some modern short story fairy tales as well. And also you Basically, could take some of those wonderful Italian... I mean, I would, you know... What about the leopard? Uh, what Ooh. about the Garden of the Finzi Contini's? I started thinking about about European novels uh, this morning in a sort of <laughs> rather kind of impotent sort of fury um, and how wonderful they were. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'm going to read, man. Death in Venice. That would be nice. Bonjour, Tristesse. Oh, mm. yeah. I'm trying to Camus, a perhaps a bit depressing. <laughs> Maybe a bit, yes. If you want something really challenging, Calvino is good. Do I mean Calvino? Yeah, Italo yeah, Calvino, yeah. yeah. He's yeah. quite good. If, if on a night of winter's... Now I can't even if do on that If on a winter's night a traveller. If yeah. on a winter's night a traveller. The book that starts over and over and over. <laughs> and actually, now I think of it, 
Um, Umberto Eco is kind of falls perfectly into oh, this sort yeah. of category because they are chunksters. Mm. They are funny. They are playing games. They're about language. They're about books. They're exciting. They're pacey. Perfect. Perfect. There you go. Everything you want from a summer read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what are we, should we do of new books, what we think is really thumbs up what we want to, what we want to take? Yes. Does anybody have something? I would go with The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. I think that's probably one of the best. And I wouldn't normally read, it's quite, it's set in the Victorian era. There's possibly a massive monster in Essex. Um, a serpent, roaming, perhaps? Yes, a serpent, <laughs> yes. Roaming the land. And um, Cora Seaborn goes to go and investigate. Uh, she's a widow, so she wants to do it as an adventure. But what I think is interesting, I would normally read that in autumn, but I was just totally lost in it. It's like one of the best storytelling experiences I think I've had this year. And one of the most beautiful books. Yeah, amazing. Let's not let's not sort of sorry, it's not published by vintage. Yeah, I'm terribly sorry. That's fine. Will, what about you? Um uh, I just, I, th- I mean, I've mentioned the girls, um, which I do think is a great sort of summer read. And I, so the great thing I think about that book is it's a very exciting thing about finding a new writer, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. Is finding new, particular, actually, new young female writers. Uh, Daisy Johnson's short stories, uh, the collection's called Fen. If you're doing a staycation, if you're staying in the UK, that would be a great read. It's set on you know the Fenlands around Norfolk and so evocative in a very, very British way about that landscape. Um, and then we'll hear a little bit later, actually, from Milena Busquets, but her book is set in Spain. I read that nowhere near the summer. It wasn't hot at all, but I, I could feel myself sweating whilst reading that book. It's just filled with sort of the heat of summer. I, I wanted a chilled glass of white wine by me. Uh, so I got one. Just to add to that that sort of English countryside, I mean, there are some wonderful novels. Um, I mean, recently published. I'm thinking of Melissa Harrison's At Hawthorne Time, which is a fantastic sort mm. of evocation, exactly as you say, of, of, and also of, of a sort of England, an ancient England, butting right up mm. to a slightly disgruntled modern England. It's a really great book. Mm. How about you? What will you be taking? Well, I am going to take The Mayor. Uh, by Mary Gateskill, who's one of my favourite writers. She wrote a book that I really love called Two Girls Fat and Thin. And this is uh, a book that I think has some similarities to a very long essay she published a few years ago, uh, which doesn't sound that promising. It's about a lost cat uh, and is just simply one of the best essays I have ever read. Uh, And this is a book about how a reasonably affluent couple who live in the countryside in America foster a child from the city and how that basically goes very right and goes very wrong. And it's just, I I cannot wait to be reading it. That sounds great. I think from this discussion, we have discovered that summer reading doesn't have to be a particular type of book, but that you should read when you're on holiday. Am I right? You're right. And I would second Fenn. I think Fenn is incredible. And to mention another vintage book, I'm going to take the Gustav Sonata by Rose Tremaine. Oh, wonderful. What could be better when you're too hot than a bit of ice skating? I'm just going to I'm going to make one last plea. Yeah. It's not a recommendation. It's something that I kind of do. I think we probably all do. And I remember doing it last year. If you're staying somewhere like a villa or even a kind of hotel that's got a sort of lounge or whatever, and you really enjoyed a book, leave it there. That's a very good leave idea. Leave it there. And I did this last year with a slightly heavy heart because it was such a pretty book. And then I thought, oh, don't be so mean. Get another one. With uh, Patricia Highsmith's Deep Water 
which I think, Simon, do you really like I that book? Absolutely it's love such that a great book. book. Yeah. And it has a most, it's been reissued relatively recently, it has a wonderful blue, bright blue, vibrant colour. And I was reading it by a bright blue, vibrant pool. And it's just so good. And I thought, you know what, somebody else is really going to sit by this pool and read this book and enjoy it. And I love it when I find books in places as well. So, you know, spread the love, guys, spread the love. That's the that's the right attitude. I like that. Oh, it's probably not absolutely right if you're selling books. But anyway, well, it's a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> you buy another copy, though. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. It's all fine. Simon, I hope you have a lovely holiday in Italy. Thanks. Don't turn up. I won't. <laughs> can I? Yeah. Yes, you can. I can. Well, yeah. can't. I know he's a troublemaker. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Simon. Now, whether you're leaving the country this summer or not, the great thing about any book is that it can transport you somewhere else entirely. Next up, we have four authors who take us to California, South Africa, Spain and the murky world of international waters, explaining why location was so important to their books and reading us a short excerpt. First up is Emma Klein, author of The Girls. Um, Well, I'm from California, Northern California, especially. um, And I think it's such an interesting place because it's a beautiful, beautiful landscape. uh, But it seems to draw a sort of darkness to it as well. So I really like both like the the menace and the sunshine next to each other. Um, and, And I think in a way, it's a place that's always drawn searchers and people who are looking for something outside of themselves which is sort of a a vulnerable spiritual foundation for a state to have. And then it's also a dangerous state, very literally, because it's um, on the San Andreas Fault. So at any moment, you get the sense that there could be the big earthquake that sort of annihilates it entirely, which which I'm interested in as a sort of latent uh, theme in California. I looked up because of the laughter and kept looking because of the girls. I noticed their hair first, long and uncombed, then their jewelry catching the sun. The three of them were far enough away that I saw only the periphery of their features, but it didn't matter. I knew they were different from everyone else in the park. Families milling in a vague line, waiting for sausages and burgers from the open grill. Women in checked blouses scooting into their boyfriend's sides, Kids tossing eucalyptus buttons at the feral-looking chickens that overran the strip. These long-haired girls seemed to glide above all that was happening around them, tragic and separate, like royalty in exile. I studied the girls with a shameless, blatant gape. It didn't seem possible that they might look over and notice me. My hamburger was forgotten in my lap, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the river. It was an age when I'd immediately scan and rank other girls, keeping up a constant tally of how I fell short, and I saw right away that the black-haired one was the prettiest. I had expected this even before I'd been able to make out their faces. There was a suggestion of otherworldliness hovering around her, a dirty smock dress barely covering her ass. She was flanked by a skinny redhead and an older girl, dressed with the same shabby afterthought, as if dredged from the lake. All their cheap rings like a second set of knuckles. They were messing with an uneasy threshold, prettiness and ugliness at the same time, and a ripple of awareness followed them through the park. Mothers glancing around for their children, moved by some feeling they couldn't name. Women reaching for their boyfriend's hands. The sun spiked through the trees like always, the drowsy willows, the hot wind gusting over the picnic blankets, 
but the familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. Uh, hello, my name is uh, Milena Busquets, and I'm the author of uh, This Too Shall Pass, which is a novel that is, uh, is set a little bit in, in Barcelona at the beginning, and then uh, quite quickly the character, the main character, and, and her friends and, and her lover and ex-husbands, they, uh, they go to spend the summer in a small town called Cadaqués, which is a small town by the, by the Mediterranean very close to the French border. It's at, uh, the town where Dali, the, the painter, was born. So there is a, like, a very important artistic community and very bohemian uh, sort of uh, atmosphere. And it's important for the book because it's where the main character has spent uh, all her uh, childhood and all her teenage years. And so where the, the, the most important things in her life have uh, sort of uh, happened emotionally and also like uh, the first parties and, and, and the discovery of uh, sex and love has happened there so it's uh, like the place of uh, where everything happened and it's also the place where at the start of the novel uh, the mother of the main character uh, is buried so uh, yeah it's like a, it's like a character in, in, in the novel in fact Kadakesh and now I will read uh, a little bit of the beginning for some strange reason I never considered what it would be like to be 40 when I was 20, I could imagine myself at 30, living with the love of my life and a bunch of kids. Or at 60, baking apple pies with my grandchildren. Me, who can boil an egg to save my soul, but I would learn. Even at 80, as an old back drinking whiskey with my girlfriends. But I never imagined myself at 40, not at 50 either. And yet, here I am. It's my mother's funeral, and if that's not bad enough, I'm 40. I have no idea how I got here, how I got to this town that suddenly makes me want to puke. I swear I've never dressed so badly in my entire life. When I get home, I'm going to burn every last stitch of clothing I have on today. They're all drenched in exhaustion and sadness. There's nothing worth saving. All my friends are here today, and a few of hers, and some others who don't seem to be friends of anybody. A huge crowd. And yet, some of the important ones are missing. Illness evicted her from her throne so cruelly in the end, it completely destroyed her kingdom and pretty much screwed us all up one way or another. And you pay for those things when the funeral comes around. First, there's you, mom, the dead person, who fucked them over. And then me, the daughter, whom they were never fond of anyway. It's your fault, mom, you know that? Little by little, unawares, the weight of your dwindling happiness found its place on my shoulders. And it weighed so heavily, so heavily, even when I was far away, even when I began to understand and accept it, what was happening, even when I separated myself from you for a while, because I realized that if I didn't, you wouldn't be the only casualty left in the wreckage. But I do think you love me. Not a lot, not a little, you just love me, full stop. I have always thought that people who say I love you so much actually love you very little. Or maybe they add the so much, which in this case really means so little, out of awkwardness or fear at the sheer command of an I love you, which is the only real way of saying I love you. The so much turns it into something for the general public when it's never meant to be. I love you, 
the magic words that can turn you into a dog or a god, a lunatic, a shadow. My name is Yewande Omotosho, and the title of my book is The Woman Next Door. I set the book in a fictitious suburb called Katerin, and it's situated in Constantia, which is a suburb in Cape Town, a particularly wealthy suburb, and an old suburb in, in Cape Town, South Africa. It was important to me that the book is set in a plush, privileged, and quite old guard um, area in the Cape, an area with history of wine farms, but also slavery. These were themes that were relevant to the story I wanted to tell. The habit of walking was something Hortensia took up after Peter fell ill. Not at the beginning of his sickness, but later when he turned seriously ill, bedridden. It had been a Wednesday. She remembered because Bassie the cook was off on Wednesdays and there were medallions of lamb in Tupperware in the fridge, meant to be warmed in the convection oven, meant to be eaten with roasted root vegetables slathered in olive oil. But she hadn't been hungry. The house felt small, which seemed an impossible thing for a six-bedroomed home. Still, there it was. I'm going out, Hortensia had shouted at the banister. According to the nurses, she wasn't supposed to leave him unattended, but Hortensia held the nurses and their opinions in contempt. She didn't see the need to knock on the door and tell him she was leaving either. She had convinced herself that Peter's hearing unlike his deteriorating body, was intact, that he was capable of hearing even while buried beneath blankets, hearing through the closed door of what she called the sick bay, hearing down the stairs, hearing as she closed the front door behind her. She'd gone out through the pedestrian gate, looked up and down Catherine Avenue and turned right towards the kopi. The kopi, a small rise in an otherwise flat landscape, was the obvious place to walk to that first time and every time since. Being neither fit nor young, it was important to her, especially with her bad leg, that the slope was gradual enough not to be a bother, but still high enough to afford her tensha a sense of accomplishment each time she climbed it. She was petite and her strides were small. Her walk had grown laboured over the years, but in her youth, with her small stature and vigorous movements, she had been regularly confused from afar for a child. Her curly black hair, cut close to the skull, didn't help her appear any more adult. Up close, though, there was nothing childlike about the sharpness of her cheekbones, her dark, serious face, her brown eyes. Once on top of the kopi, her tension liked to trail through the grasses and low bush. She wore her hiking boots and enjoyed the crunch of their soles on the rough ground. All this had been a surprise that first time. Enjoyment of nature wasn't generally something Hortensia engaged in. But at the advanced age she was, with over 60 years of erect marriage behind her, this enjoyment was precarious. The slightest thing could upset it. The top of the kopi was planted with wild, growing vines and scattered pine trees. A path cut through the long grasses, and although it looked maintained, Hortensia couldn't help but think of the kopi as a forgotten land. Once it became of interest to her, she quickly noticed that the kids of the neighborhood didn't play there, and the adults of Catherine seemed to flatten the hill with their gaze, discount its presence. Soon after she started climbing it, to get away from a dying man 
to give him room to die faster, to catch fresh air. She couldn't work out which. Some old bat from the committee mentioned it. Put it on the agenda, in fact. My name is Ruth Ware, and my novel, The Woman in Cabin 10, is about a murder on a cruise ship. It's a boutique cruise, so it's a very small number of cabins and a finite number of passengers. Um, and part of my decision to set my book there was a sort of Agatha Christie-ish desire to have this closed room mystery where you've got a very claustrophobic setting that people can't easily get away from. Um, my narrator, after she witnesses what she thinks is a body being thrown overboard, she has literally no way of getting off the ship and getting away from people that she suspects could have murdered someone. Um, so part of the reason for choosing the setting was that desire to put people in a very uncomfortable situation and basically prevent them from escaping. But the other reason for choosing a cruise is because of the very muddy legal situation that ships enter when they go into international waters. Um, so when a ship is in uh, close to the coast, then it's governed by the laws of that particular country. But in international waters, the ship isn't governed by the law of the captain or the passengers or even the country that it's closest to. It's governed by the legal situation in the country where the ship is registered to. Now, for tax reasons, very often these are quite odd, far-flung places like the Caribbean, you know, the Cayman Islands, the Bahamas. And so you can have this situation when a crime has been committed that a policeman is dispatched from an island that's maybe a thousand miles away to investigate a crime that took place off the coast of Hull or Norway. Um, and sometimes it happened, you know, three weeks, six weeks before they even arrive. All of this makes crime at sea, plus, of course, the obvious um, advantage that you have an easy way of disposing of the body. All of that makes it very, very difficult to investigate and a very muddy situation, even before you get into the whole difficulty of proving a case. So for all those reasons, I chose to put my poor characters in this situation. When I opened the bedroom door, there was a man standing there. There's no point in wondering what he looked like, because, believe me, I went over it about 25 times with the police. Not even a bit of skin around his wrists, they kept asking. No, no, and no. He had a hoodie on and a bandana around his nose and mouth and everything else was in shadow. Except for his hands. On these, he was wearing latex gloves. It was that detail that scared the shit out of me. Those gloves said, I know what I'm doing. They said, I've come prepared. They said, I might be after more than your money. We stood there for a long second, facing each other, his shining eyes locked onto mine. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind. Where the hell was my phone? Why did I drink so much last night? I would have heard him come in if I'd been sober. Oh, Christ, I wish Judah was here. And most of all, those gloves. Oh, my God, those gloves. They were so professional, so clinical. I didn't speak. I didn't move. I just stood there, my ratty dressing gown gaping, and shook. Delilah wriggled out of my unresisting hands and shot away up the hallway to the kitchen. Please, I thought. Please don't hurt me. Oh, God, where was my phone? 
Then I saw something in the man's hands. My handbag. My new Burberry handbag. Although that detail seemed monumentally unimportant, there was only one thing that mattered about that bag. My mobile was inside. His eyes crinkled in a way that made me think he might be smiling beneath the bandana, and I felt the blood drain from my head and my fingers, pooling in the core of my body, ready to fight or flee, whichever it had to be. He took a step forward. No, I said. I wanted it to sound like a command, but it came out like a plea, my voice small and squeaky and quavering pathetically with fear. I didn't even get to finish. He slammed the bedroom door in my face, hitting my cheek. For a long moment I stood, frozen, holding my hand to my face, speechless with the shock and pain. My fingers felt ice cold, but there was something warm and wet on my face, and it took a moment for me to realise it was blood, that the moulding on the door had cut my cheek. I wanted to run back to bed, to shove my head under the pillows and cry and cry, but a small, ugly voice in my head kept saying, he's still out there, what if he comes back? What if he comes back for you? There was a sound from out in the hall, something falling, and I felt a rush of fear that should have galvanized me, but instead paralyzed me. Don't come back. Don't come back. I realized I was holding my breath, and I made myself exhale, long and shuddering, and then slowly, slowly, I forced my hand out towards the door. There was another crash in the hallway outside, breaking glass, and with a rush I grabbed the knob and braced myself, my bare toes dug into the old gappy floorboards, ready to hold the door closed as long as I could. I crouched there, hunched over with my knees to my chest, trying to muffle sobs with my dressing gown, while I listened to him ransacking the flat, and hoped to God that Delilah had run into the garden out of harm's way. At last, after a long, long time, I heard the front door open and shut. I sat there, crying into my knees, unable to believe he'd really gone, that he wasn't coming back to hurt me. My hands felt numb and painfully stiff, but I didn't dare let go of the handle. I saw again those strong hands in the pale latex gloves. I don't know what would have happened next. Maybe I would have stayed there all night, unable to move. But I heard Delilah outside, mewing and scratching at the other side of the door. Delilah, I said hoarsely. My voice was trembling so much I hardly sounded like myself. Oh, Delilah! Through the door I heard her purr, the familiar deep chainsaw rasp, and it was like a spell had been broken. I let my cramped fingers loosen from the doorknob, flexing them painfully, and then stood up, trying to steady my trembling legs, and turned the door handle. It turned. In fact, it turned too easily, 
twisting without resistance under my hand, without moving the latch an inch. He'd removed the spindle from the other side. Fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuck. I was trapped. That last clip was from the audiobook of The Woman in Cabin 10, which is the perfect reading, or perhaps not, if you're going on a cruise this summer. Now, Will, after that very quick tour around the world, you're about to take us off once again, aren't you? I'm indeed, yes. I got the chance to speak to writer Andrew Solomon, who's the author of uh, The Noonday Demon and Far From the Tree. Oh, wonderful Far From the Tree. Amazing books, both of them. But he, as well as being the author of those amazing books uh, and being, of course, one of the most charming and wonderful people I've ever met, he's also so incredibly well-travelled. And his new book, Far and Away, collects together 25 years' worth of reporting from around the world. And uh, what he did when I met him was to begin by reading the section that explains where his desire to travel first came from. When I was about seven, my father told me about the Holocaust. We were in the Yellow Buick on State Highway New York 9A, and I had been asking him whether Pleasantville was actually pleasant. I cannot remember why the Nazis came up a mile or two later, but I do remember that he thought I already knew about the final solution, and so he didn't have any rehearsed way to present the camps. He said that this had happened to people because they were Jewish. I knew that we were Jewish, and I gathered that if we'd been there at the time, it would have happened to us, too. I insisted that my father explain it at least four times because I kept thinking I must be missing some part of the story that would make it make sense. He finally told me, with an emphasis that nearly ended the conversation, that it was pure evil. But I had one more question. Why didn't those Jews just leave when things got bad? They had nowhere to go, he said. At that instant, I decided that I would always have somewhere to go. I would never be helpless, dependent, or credulous. I would never suppose that just because things had always been fine, they would continue to be fine. My notion of absolute safety at home crumbled then and there. I would leave before the walls closed outside the ghetto, before the train tracks were completed, before the borders were sealed. If genocide ever threatened midtown Manhattan, I would be all set to gather up my passport and head for some place where they'd be glad to have me. My father had said that some Jews were helped by non-Jewish friends, and I concluded that I would always have friends who were different from me, the kind who could take me in or get me out. That first talk with my father was mostly about horror, of course, but it was also in this regard a conversation about love. And over the course of time, I came to understand that you could save yourself with broad affections. People had died because their paradigms were too local. I was not going to have that problem. Andrew, thank you so much for reading From Far and Away. Um, It's an incredibly powerful beginning to your book, an incredibly powerful catalyst for for travel. Um, Presumably, with all the travelling that you've done, it doesn't feel quite so powerful with all the journeys that you make, but that impetus clearly was for you, wasn't it, as a child? 
the impetus was very strong. I mean, I think the impetus was multifactorial. I think that was a big piece of it. I also think that as a gay person, I in some ways felt like a foreigner within my own society. Mm -hmm. And I liked the idea of going to places where I was actually a foreigner in a more concrete and accessible way. But I always had a sense that not knowing what the rest of the world was like was dangerous and frightening and that going to places was not only something that I would find interesting and stimulating, but that it was sort of a, a necessity if one wanted to have any feeling of safety. Yes, you mentioned there about being a gay man. There's a great line in the opening uh, chapter in your book where you say that dual nationality and gay marriage were things that you had only a sort of tenuous enthusiasm for until you actually tried them. Um, and, and that thing about having a, a dual nationality meant that you had a, the sort of ability to think of yourself as a world citizen. Is that right? It really did. I uh, had residence permission in Britain for a while. I studied here and then I lived here. And then at some point, it was possible for me to apply for a passport. I was meant to meet eight criteria, and seven of them I met perfectly well. I had never been arrested. I had paid my taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But the eighth one was that I not have spent more than, I think it was six weeks out of Britain in any of the previous seven years. Mm. And I had, in fact, been spending a great deal of time out of Britain. I was writing a book about Russia, and I was really living much of the time in America, especially because uh, my mother was ill and I had gone to help take care of her. So I said that to my solicitor, and I said, do you think that there's anything I can do? And he said, I don't, I don't think so. You don't meet the criteria. And I said, could I write them a letter? And he said, I suppose there's nothing to lose. So I wrote a slightly ludicrous letter in which I explained that while I had had to be in Moscow for the book and in New York for my mother, that in my heart of hearts, I was loyal to the queen. <laughs> and there must have been a rather bored clerk on duty that day because <laughs> I got citizenship papers virtually by return post. And I did love getting them. They really did give me the sense that if things in America turned really bleak, either for me personally or just in terms of the overall situation, as is constantly a threat in American politics, mm. and especially these days, I would have some other set of options. And I liked that sense of being rooted in more than one place. That sense of duality had been so profound in my experience of the world, and it was nice to have it reified by these two passports that could sit side by side. And I think as well, from your childhood, you'd, you'd had a, quite a, you know, a big affection for, for the UK, um, it's just interesting, I think, people listening to this in the UK who are thinking about traveling away from the UK for their holidays often don't think about how wonderful a country it is. Um, you, of course, saw the UK as, as a foreigner, and I think you had a sort of an idea of what it would be like before you got there. Is that right? I had an idea of the UK that went back to early children's books that I loved and to the Scottish woman who helped take care of me when I was little and to all kinds of other uh, connections and developed what at the time was merely an affected way of speaking uh, <laughs> early on because I thought there was so much music in British parlance and so on and so forth. I had sort of an obsession um, with the UK uh, in the way that I think people do have obsessions with places that aren't natively theirs. Mm -hmm. um, and then as time went on and I actually moved here and began to live here, I came to love the UK, but for different reasons. A lot of what I had imagined it would be like wasn't what it was like, but a lot of what it was like was really spectacular. Um, and I felt that I learned different modes of friendship and different modes of expression and um, 
different systems of values and different priorities. Now, some of them I agree with, and in some ways I remain very American, but having been fully immersed in another way of doing things gave me a sense that all of it was a matter of choice mm. and that what would have seemed simply inevitable if I had remained all of my life in the place I came from now seemed like something that was worth considering and deciding in favor of or against. I just That idea of travel as being important, uh, almost p- politically, because you mentioned there about it being dangerous to remain rooted in one place, but also that there is something about the knowledge that you gain from other cultures by traveling uh, within them that might be important. And in fact, I think in your opening chapter you, as well, you say that if every young adult spent two weeks in another land, then we could solve two-thirds of any diplomatic crises that might arise just because of that awareness. I mean, do you still feel that way, that it is really important that people travel abroad? I feel that way very deeply and very strongly. There's a tendency to look at travel as though it were a luxury, and it can be a luxury, and there's certainly very luxurious travel available to those who can afford it. But I think travel is also a social responsibility and that people whose economic circumstances uh, or whose immigration status, these uh, external things don't prevent them from going to other places, really have an obligation to go to other places. You need to go to other places in order to understand those other places. And I think that's where some of the diplomatic issue comes in. You also need to do it to understand your place, to understand the country you've come from. I'm quite a patriot for both the U.S. and the U.K. I would never have understood the U.S. the way I do if I hadn't left it so often. Mm. And I would never have understood the U.K. as I do if I had been brought up here and never gone anywhere else. We live in a world in which politicians are constantly trying to frighten people, Mm. saying it's virtually too dangerous to leave the house. There's this terrible wave of xenophobia and mistrust of people who are different, who are other. And the only way around that is to understand the full humanity of people who are different and who are other. And you can't do that simply by interacting a little bit with a few refugees on your shores. You have to do it by seeing where it is they live and what their lives are like as much as you are feasibly able to do. People who have been into space, astronauts, they they talk about this thing called the overview effect, which is that having seen Earth's place in the cosmos, they have a completely different sort of understanding or view about humanity and borders and cultures when they come back down. And I just wonder whether making sure that you do travel a lot is a sort of terrestrial version of the overview effect. Is, Is it perhaps the only way to really understand what a global community means? I'm fascinated by those stories, which I have also heard, and I had hoped at one point that the final chapter of this book would be about going into space and having that overview effect, (laughs) and I couldn't swing it. Um, (laughs) If the advances were somewhat more generous, a shadow and windows, perhaps I would have made it. Uh, I think that there – I think it's terrifying always to realize how many of the things that make you feel rooted and stable and in place are actually – minor and transient and in the scheme of even the planet, much less the universe, relatively insignificant. You know, we all have our driving obsessions and they can be overpowering a lot of the time. And then you think, but does it really matter? And you suddenly find yourself in complicated existentialist territory. (laughs) I happen to be really interested in places and in travel and I've gone to a lot of places and I've written about a lot of places in this book. Part of my hope for it is that people who don't have the time um, or the inclination to visit so many places in reading it will have at least a little bit of a sense of what it would have been like if they had been able to go. 
So I think it's important, for instance, when you look at the international news to try to see how that news is being presented in the country where it's occurring and not only to see the way it gets filtered through fellow countrymen who are there issuing it on uh, local broadcast networks. I wanted to ask you as well about the sort of the difference between, um, I guess, travel and tourism, I guess, which would be the other word that we would use. Because I think that many people stick to the very safe options of, of travel, but partly because of that fear that you just mentioned, but also because it's easier. And therefore, maybe the experiences they have when they travel are incredibly limited and they're not really engaging with the, the culture they might be visiting. They're merely observing or even living in a small enclave on their own. Uh, there's a gr- another great line I'm afraid I'm going to quote back to you, which is that either you have a good time or you have a story to tell, and you're sort of open to both of those options. Um, what is it you think that makes the difference with travelling, that makes it the most um, enriching experience that it could be? Tourism involves going to a foreign place and looking at it, um, but remaining in many ways very dissociated from it. Traveling involves going and engaging with the reality of another place, trying to talk to people who live there, trying to understand what their lives are like, trying to function in some of the ways that they function. There are very few people who manage to do one without the other. Mm. Some people are mostly tourists, but they have a little bit of that travelish engagement. Some people are travelers, but they still actually want to see the spectacular sight of the long-lost abbey in ruins that lies at the foot of the mountain. So both of those things go on all the time. I think it's important when one travels to allow oneself to be reduced, which is to say that there is an essential self that is the same whether you are at home or abroad. But sometimes when you go into another place in another country, your education, your financial situation, your uh, accent, whatever else it is that has so much weight and bearing on how everyone perceives you at home becomes invisible. Mm -hmm. And you have to figure out who you are when all of those things are stripped away. And for many people, that's a discovery of a real essence and it gives them tremendous joy. And for some people, that's a completely terrifying experience. (laughs) I think, though, that even if what you're doing is mostly touristic, you have to observe that these people are different, that they're doing things differently, that their point of view is somewhat different. It's very hard to close yourself off to that entirely. Um, And I think that is enriching. I think just the the fact of going to places is enriching. Um, I think going into space and having that overview of the world would be incredibly enriching. Um, There is a kind of sophisticated provincialism that some people fall into in which they think that because they went and bought their clothes in a smart boutique in Paris or Milan and because they've gone and know which are the finest hotels and restaurants in those places, they've really engaged with other places. I always think what you need to do is sort of to put yourself in neutral um, and to let yourself be open to what the place you're visiting has to offer and to let yourself most fundamentally become a slightly different person when you're there. Mm. You can go back to being your same old self when you get home, but I think real travel entails letting go of the things not only by which the world has defined you, but of some of the things by which you've defined yourself. And with that, does 
does that come an element of allowing yourself to be surprised about what you might find, uh, not only about the country that you visited, but also what you might find out about yourself? Absolutely. And I think that element of surprise is, you know, both the joy of travel and the thing that makes it so frightening. Mm -hmm. um, and I've done quite a lot of it, and I think I'm now reasonably comfortable in it. My book begins with the description of my time in Moscow in the late um, 1980s during uh, Glasnost and in the lead up to the demise of the Soviet Union. And I remember going there and feeling completely panic stricken by thinking there's nothing familiar about this. The place isn't familiar. The language isn't familiar. The topics of conversation aren't familiar. The um, attitudes that people have toward one another aren't familiar. And it felt like being in free fall. And then at some point I sort of landed and I thought, oh, it's all different. And now I can tell more about what this is like and more about who I am. And it's it's just so interesting and so compelling. And I was writing about artists in um, at the late Soviet period. And they were heroes. And I realized in the life I'd been growing up in, there was no need for or opportunity for real heroism. And these were people who had functioned on the basis of such deep moral convictions, and they changed my sense of what it meant to live a good life. Um, that thing, I, I'm really interested about um, how the perceptions of other cultures are changed so radically by being immersed in them. I mean, you, you're speaking there about Russia, and of course, Russia and America, even in that period, you know, proper enemies on a, on a political stage. And it, is there something about sort of arriving there and re realizing that despite the cultural differences and that, that terror that you first experienced, that once you had landed and spoken to them, that of course they were not so different perhaps as you had been led to believe by the, the propaganda that we read in, in the news, as you say, the fear that is propagated? Well, the sort of idiotic part of the propaganda is the supposition that good people are all grouped in one geographical area and bad people are all grouped in another one. Yeah. There are good and bad people in the United States. There are good and bad people in the UK. There were good and bad people in the Soviet Union and so on and on and on. Uh, I think that the, uh, the effect of the propaganda to which we're all subject, and I use that word in the relatively informal sense, um, is that one always thinks our culture makes sense and these other cultures are kind of crazy. And I think the experience of traveling is to think these cultures aren't as crazy as I thought and our culture doesn't make such good sense as I thought it does. You know, you're suddenly sort of veering off into a different uh, reality. Um, I think the... Uh, I think the, the real gist of travel is simply doesn't matter whether the way someone else does things is better, or at least it doesn't primarily matter. What primarily matters is understanding that there is another way to do things. It's just that fact. And that fact, which sounds simple, I've just done it in half a sentence, is actually one that you have to go on learning over and over again across a lifetime. Just to finish off, I wanted to ask about your, your children, traveling with your children, um, because as somebody who has children myself, um, you know, there's a really interesting question there about when, when is it too early to travel with a child? And, and, and you suggest that actually it's never too early. They may not remember the trip that you've taken in its you know, specific detail, but the fact of traveling with children straight away means that they're already looking at the world in a different way. And, and you, 
you tell a great story about your your child and a Senegalese taxi driver in in, uh, in New York. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that story was about my son George, who when he was um, uh, uh, four was very very fascinated by maps and spent a lot of time looking at them. And we talked a lot about travel in our household, and we did quite a lot of it. And we were in a taxi, and um, uh, uh, there was some pleasant banter going on with the taxi driver and one of us said where did you come from and he said Senegal and then he looked around back at little George and he said I'll bet you don't know where that is little boy and George said it's immediately south of Mauritania and shares a border with Ghana and he was so startled (laughs) that he very nearly crashed the taxi Um, but I am very aware I bring up my children mostly in New York and um, uh, uh, some of the time here in London I'm aware of the provincialism that accrues to people who um, believe that where they're living is the best and only place where one could live. Mm. Now, you know, like all parents, I sort of hope my children will not live too far away when they grow up and so on. But I wanted them to have a sense of the world as full of possibilities. And I found that seeing things anew through their eyes um, opened up a lot of possibilities for me and that I saw things differently than I had. I acquired much of my love of travel from my mother. I feel like it was a worthy legacy she passed on to me and one that I'm pleased to pass on to my children. In terms of the memory question, we don't live our current lives solely for the purpose of creating future memories. We actually experience them while we're living in them. And it's true that when you take children, I mean almost babies on trips, they aren't really registering anything very much, except that they get used to the idea that Airplanes are a thing you get on and off of, and airports are a place that you pass through, and that sometimes you're sleeping in a bed here, and sometimes you're sleeping in a very different kind of bed there. So um, by the time that George was five, he'd been in India, he'd been in Brazil. They were mostly places where I was on assignment, and I had to go, and I brought him along in part because I wanted him and my husband to be there so that we could all have a nice time together but also in part because I thought I don't want to have this life that excludes him and tell him that he isn't old enough for it yet. If he doesn't like doing it at some point, he will not have to. But the reality is that it's turned out that he loves doing it. And when I say to him, what would you like to do this summer? He says, let's go someplace (sighs) with a really, a lovely enthusiasm that I must say gives me hope for the future. Well, I hope whatever, wherever you go this summer that you both have a a fantastic time. It has been fascinating to talk to you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Huge pleasure for me. Thank you so much. Well, that was completely fascinating, Will. I mean, when we think about travel in the context of what we're facing today in this country and throughout the world, the idea of navigating borders, the idea of seeing other cultures is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I think, well, you and I both know that travelling to other countries and absorbing their culture is is one of the most important things you can do in your life. And Although that said, I have gone to the same place on holiday for the last four years. There is a lot to be said for returning to something that feels comfortable. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> um, but no, I think, you know, Andrew Solomon, uh, such a fascinating man, and I think he's so right about the fact that Travel isn't just a leisure activity. It's it's important. It's important for your soul and it's important for our responsibility to, to other people around the world. It's important for your sense of scale, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it's so it's so easy to become uh, sort of you-centric. Mm. You know, we know this, given that we're broadcasting from London, the metropolitan bubble. Yes. 
Well, uh, as a former resident of the metropolitan bubble who now lives in the countryside with people who sometimes see things a bit differently, I know exactly what you mean. But I, I always thought when I was a kid, I thought everybody should be allowed to go up into space and then you could see the Earth from space and that would give you the perspective that everybody really needs to You have. heard it here first, podcast listeners. Next <laughs> issue, space. I'd love to. To infinity and beyond. <laughs> well, that wraps it up for this month. We hope you have a fantastic summer break wherever you go. But before you do... We'd love to know any thoughts, so don't hesitate to leave a comment on SoundCloud or a rating on iTunes. Bon voyage, and why don't you drop us a tweet letting us know how you're enjoying your summer reading while you're away. See you next month.